Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand. Ephesians chapter 4. We start the second half of the book of Ephesians. Title of today's message is The Worthy Walk. The Worthy Walk. Let's read the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul writes, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance of one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Paul begins this section with a transitional word, and that's therefore. Anytime you see the word therefore, you look behind it to see what it's there for. It's there because Paul has summarized all of New Testament doctrine in three chapters. And he has said that we as Christians have access to every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And as we saw last week at the end of chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, he says that our God is able to do everything he's promised, right? He's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we could ever ask or think about asking. Therefore... In light of that, he says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Now, when we talk about a walk in the Christian community, we're talking about our everyday, ordered, systematic way of life. We're not talking about an aberration. We're not talking about something that happens once every blue moon. We're talking about what we're known for. A person's walk is their habitual way of living. And in the Christian context, our walk is to be noted by personal holiness. Our walk is to be known by submission to the Lordship of Christ. Our walk is to be known by study of God's Word and prayer. And the realm, the sphere in which this walk manifests itself is in our relationships. And so a good portion of the last three chapters of Ephesians has to do with Christian relationships. But before we get to the specifics of those relationships here later on in chapter 4 and in all of chapter 5 and chapter 6, Paul wants to call their attention to something. First of all, he says that he's a prisoner of the Lord. Now, this is the second time in three chapters that Paul has referred to himself as a prisoner. But in both instances, he's not saying he's a prisoner of the Roman government, which he was technically. He was under house arrest in the city of Rome when he wrote this letter. But he made sure that they understand this was the Lord's will. Even in difficult and trying circumstances where it would seem on the outside looking in that God's lost control, Paul wants to reassure them that no, God has not lost control. He's a prisoner because this is God's will and God's going to use it for his good and God's glory. And so he says, even though I'm a prisoner, I'm going to implore to you. That word means to beg, to earnestly plead with that they do something. Now, the first three chapters are doctrinal in nature. Here's who you are. 
The final three chapters are intensely practical in nature. Now here's how you ought to live. Now make note of this because this is the essential difference between biblical Christianity and every other ism in the world. Every ism in the world says we do good deeds, we walk in a worthy way so that we can win salvation. Biblical Christianity says we walk in a worthy way because we have been saved. You see the difference? The reason we live for Christ is that He died for us. There's a parallel passage to Ephesians chapter 4 and that's Romans chapter 12. And we happen to be in the middle of the study of Romans chapter 12 on our Wednesday night services here. And at the beginning of chapter 12, remember he points out some wonderful truths. He says that it makes perfectly logical sense that Christ died for us, that we are to be living sacrifices. Christ was the once for all literal sacrifice who died on the cross. Now we're to be living sacrifices, but he also added another adjective to living, and that is holy. Holy in the practical sense, that we are to live lives, in other words, commiserate with who we claim to be. And that's exactly what Paul is saying to the Ephesian church here in chapter 4. When he says, walk in a worthy manner, he's saying live a life that is commiserate with the assets that have accrued to you by virtue of being in Christ. Now, we remember some of those assets. He says, we've been adopted into his family. Does it make sense for children of the king to act a little different than the rest of the world? I should say so. He says, we've been redeemed. We've been purchased out of sin's bondage and set free to serve Christ. He says that uh, we've been saved by grace. We've been chosen by him. All of these great blessings that are available to us ought to motivate us to live lives that are commiserate. Remember we said at the beginning of the study of Ephesians, that our practice is not always consistent with our position. And here's Paul pleading that the position and the practice begin to line up. Now we have uh, an outline today for you. And the first point of that outline is the worthy attitude. Because we know that all behavior begins where? It begins in the heart, right? The attitude. And so Paul says here in chapter 4, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called with all humility, gentleness, and patience. You might just jot down those three words. There are three ways of really saying the same thing, but there's a little nuance of difference, and each one builds on the next. It's interesting that the Greek word here, translated in the English as humility, we don't find anywhere else in the Bible. In fact, as far as I know, it's not found anywhere in the Greek language, which has led many theologians and historians to believe that Paul made it up. I've been known to make up some words after all I was educated in Mississippi, but uh, I know what I mean. And Paul knew what he meant, and we know what he means. And so because we know it's an attitude that was Christ-like, often the English editors translated as humility. But there was not a word for humility as we understand it in the Greek language because they didn't think it was a good thing to have that attitude. The Greeks and the Romans, as you know, tended to focus upon human achievement, they focused on the ego, they focused on the here and the now. And so to, for someone, a man particularly, to be described as humble had negative connotations and so they didn't have a word for it. But, but Paul, of course, was associating this attitude with Christ, wasn't he? We know that because if you'll turn just a few pages towards the back of your Bible, probably more like two or three pages, you'll come to the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, 
we find Paul's model for the kind of attitude that he speaks of here in Ephesians 4. And it's none other than Jesus. And so he says this to Christians, have this attitude. Your translation may say mind. It means the same thing. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, there's that word, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. One of the great definitions of humility that I've heard, it's not original with me, but I like to use it, Humility in the church is observing someone do what you do better than you do it and rejoicing. That's Christian humility. It's, it's putting oneself under another person voluntarily. And that we know that's what uh, the Lord Jesus did. Now, gentleness is the next word back in Ephesians chapter 4. And John MacArthur says that gentleness is the inevitable product of humility. So humility is the attitude Gentleness is how the attitude plays itself out in your relationships. You are gentle with other people. Again, that's not a very masculine word, but the way Jesus used it certainly was. Meekness is power under control. Jesus was meek, but was he weak? Of course not. He was omnipotent, the opposite of weak. And therefore, we are to be weak as, and meek as Christ is meek. And then there's a third word he uses here, and that is patient. The word uh, we often use in the New Testament is forbearing. I think in the New American Standard, it's tolerant. Now, that, that's a buzzword in our culture, isn't it? Tolerance. Tolerance in our culture means that uh, we allow any sort of depravity and don't say anything about it. That's not this word. Forbearance in the church means we put up with a lot from other people and we're not quick-tempered about it. It doesn't mean that we don't have standards of morality. It doesn't mean that, that we don't know the difference between right or wrong or good or evil. It just means at the point of personal preference, we give ground. We don't always have to have our way. And remember that I told you over in Romans chapter 12, we have this parallel passage. Well, let's turn back a few pages in your Bible, this time to Romans chapter 12 and... Uh, Look how Paul says it plays itself out when we're living sacrifices. He calls us to be living sacrifices in verse 1. He says we're not to be conformed to this world. That is, we're not to have the same attitudes as the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And then for the rest of the chapter, in chapter 12, he says, now this is what it will look like if you're doing that. Verse 3, Romans 12, he says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. And so what is the definition of a word? What is the word when we don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think? That's called humility, right? And so you see this parallel passage. But to think so as to have sound judgment, as God hath allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, all the members don't have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each is to exercise them accordingly. Here's his point. If someone gives you a wonderful present, a gift for Christmas or your birthday or for graduation, you don't take pride in yourself for being the recipient of the gift. You give glory to who? The gift giver 
and you heap praise upon the gift. Who is the gift giver when it comes to salvation? It's God. What is the gift? It's his grace through salvation. And so since that did not emanate from within us, it came from God, we can't boast in it, and therefore we don't have the right when God gifts us individually with spiritual gifts to hoard them, to say this is for me and for no one else. It's to be expressed humbly with forbearance in the context of the church. And so the worthy attitude, Paul says back in Ephesians chapter 4, is one that is marked by humility of attitude, gentleness of behavior, and patience and forbearance in its dealings in the church. Well, that leads us to our second point, and that is the worthy relationship. Again, a great portion of the rest of Ephesians is about relationships. In fact, we'll find a progression beginning in about verse 25. And in verse 25 of chapter 4, he says, here's how any two Christians are to relate to one another. He says there's to put away falsehood. And so it begins with honesty. And from there, he narrows it down to specific relationships, namely in chapter 4 and 5 between husbands and wives. And he talks about the roles of Christian husbands, Christian wives. Then he talks about the roles of children, children of your parents. Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. And then he gets all the way to the relationships that we have at work with our coworkers and with supervisors and with those who work for us. And so the last three chapters of Ephesians is intensely practical in its application. But in verse 3, he says this about our relationships. He says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The bond of peace speaks of our relationship. Now, Paul, remember, was writing this letter from where? From prison. And he probably had in his mind some things that were binding him, namely that uh, 220-pound Roman soldier he was shackled to day and night. And he had this imagery of chains. But he says what binds us together as Christians are not iron chains. What is it? Peace, love, that desire for unity. And, of course, this is ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit. He says showing tolerance for one another in love. The thing that ties it all together is love. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, he calls it love that is not hypocritical. It's not put on. It's not fake. It is genuine and sincere in its nature. But here's the great mystery that Paul speaks of. How the church can be made up of such diverse people and have unity and be full of grace and beauty. It's kind of like a marriage, isn't it? Now, a marriage is made up of one man and, and one woman. I said a marriage is one man and one woman. <laughs> and even though they are similar in that they're both made in the image of God, they are different physically and in the way that they think. But that's a good thing. Because God doesn't put people together that are just alike. We call that complementarianism, where people who are different make up for the differences in one another, and, and, and the two are greater together than they are separately. We call that synergism, right? And if that's true in a marriage, it's certainly true in a church. Now remember the context of chapter 3. He's talking about how Jesus, through his shed blood on the cross, has broken down that middle wall of separation 
that for centuries, millennia, have separated Jews and Gentiles. But because Jesus died for all, that wall is broken down and now he's putting together something brand new called a church. He's the head of the body and we're all component parts, whether Jew or Greek, educated, uneducated, rich or poor, and we're all working together for his glory, right? And so here's what Paul is saying, that we have humility and gentleness and forbearance and patience with one another, working hard to preserve the unity. Did you know you have to work hard to preserve unity? You say, oh, pastor, when you're in love, you don't have to work at it. Is that right? Do tell. Yeah, you have to work at it. Yeah, you, you have to begin with the love, and that's why he said that we are one in the bond of love. You still have to work at it. There's still days when you don't get out of bed in the morning with this warm fuzzy, right? There are days when everything that person does irritates you, so my wife tells me. <laughs> and, and that's true not only in marriage, that, that's true in the church, isn't it? Now, we don't always have warm feelings towards everything the other person does, and we just can't wait to get to church to be next to that person who irritates us in Sunday school. But we're forbearing, and we're patient, and we're long-suffering with that person because they're our brother in Christ, right? They're our sister in Christ. We're part of the same body. We're, sort of, we're part of the same building that's being built up as a dwelling place for the Lord. So the worthy attitude leads to worthy relationships. And finally, there's some worthy reasons. Verses 4 through 6, in rapid-fire succession, he gives us some reasons why we can be forbearing and patient with one another. He says this, There's one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through and in you all. What is interesting about those three verses is that in each one you have a different member of the Trinity represented. So he begins with the Holy Spirit. There's one body and one spirit. Verse 5, he says there's one Lord. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 6, he says one God and Father. That is God the Father. And so I think the implication of that is, all right, I've talked about unity. If you want to see real unity, look to the Trinity, Right? Remember in Jesus' high priestly prayer, what does he pray for all of us? That we would have the same sort of unity that he and the Father had, right? In the church. Well, of course, that includes the Holy Spirit. Because God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are three persons, but one God. Just as the church are many members and yet what? One body. Now he begins to delineate that and get more specific. First of all, he says we are one body. He, of course, there is speaking of the church. Many times in the New Testament, we see the church, and I'm speaking now of the big C church. The little C church, we're talking about locally. The big C, we mean every Christian from every period of history since the day of Pentecost. All believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are part of his true church. I'm talking about born-again believers. And so there's one body. That's why we can get on an airplane and we can go to virtually, and I would say every political nation on planet Earth, and you're going to find Christians there. 
you're going to find brothers and sisters in Christ there. And that's why we're taking the gospel to, to the Yalunka, these unreached people groups. Because the scripture says that God is drawing out from every tribe and tongue and ethnos in the Greek, every people group. He has his children. And so our job is to take the message and he, through his spirit, draws them. And then when they're saved, they become part of the same body that we belong to. Isn't that amazing? You have people that, that speak French. You have people that speak uh, Dutch, you have people that speak Swahili, you have people that don't speak at all, verbally, who are all part of the same body. You have people that have multiple doctoral degrees, you have people that are illiterate, and you have everywhere in between, part of the same body. You have people that are extraordinarily wealthy, you have people that are poor in the things of the world, all in one body. And I would say this, not only is it that way universally, I say that's the way the local church ought to look as well. That's why James, the brother of Jesus, says when a rich man comes into your service, you don't usher him to the place of honor. Tell the poor man to sit in the floor because as a church, we all are part of the body. And in the body, we're not looking at one another. We're looking to our head. He is the one who is worthy of our praise. So there's one body. And then he says there's one hope. Now, again, I say this every time. When Paul speaks of hope, He's not using it the way we typically use it. We typically use it as a, a sort of, of way to give the odds of something happening. Are the Rangers going to win today? Well, I hope so. They've got a good picture going today. In other words, we're not sure, but there seems to be some favorable things and, and maybe it'll turn out like we want it. That's not at all what Paul says when he says we have one hope. It means for everyone who's truly born again, we have lashed our eternal future to the cross. As Jesus says, we built our house upon the rock of our heavenly inheritance, that all the promises of God are faithful and true. And what Paul says it to the church at Philippi is that he's convinced that he that began a good work in you is going to complete it, right? That is the hope that every Christian has, the hope of eternal glory. And then he says there's one Lord this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He's hearkening here to Jesus' own words in John chapter 14 when he told his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but from me. He's putting to bed forever the notion of syncretism, which is the idea that we can take a little bit from this religion and that. He's saying there's only one way to heaven, and that's faith alone in Christ alone. But everyone who will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He says there's one faith. Now he's using that term faith there the same way that Jude, the brother of our Lord Jesus, used it in his little one chapter epistle when he said that we are to, as Christians, earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The faith is the content of the gospel. There are certain truths that one must believe before we give them the right hand of Christian fellowship. You have to believe that Jesus was born, that Jesus literally died, and that Jesus rose again. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. If you want to know the essence, the core, the foundation of the faith once delivered to the saints, it's that. that Jesus, the God of heaven, condescended to leave the glories of heaven to take on human life, lived a sinless, perfect life, died on the cross as payment 
for our sins and rose again and is alive today. That is the faith. That is the gospel. And everyone who's truly saved believes that. And then he says there's one baptism. Now, there's some disagreement on this one more than the others about what he's meaning. Um, Because Paul has spoken so often in the first three chapters about the mystical union. Remember the little prepositional phrase, two words, what is it? We are what? In Christ, and I take that to be baptized into him. You saw Luke baptized this morning. We put him all the way under the water. We call that immersion. He was engulfed. He was surrounded. There was not one square inch of his body that was not touched by water. That's what the scripture says, that when we're saved, we are immersed into Christ. We are covered by his blood, and therefore there's no possibility that we could lose our salvation because we are in him. And I think that's what he means here. There are others who think he's just talking about water baptism. But thankfully, we as Baptists get it right, so we don't have to worry either way, right? And then he says there's, there's one God. Here's that third member of the Trinity. He's spoken about the Spirit. He's talked about the second person, the Lord Jesus. And now he speaks of the Father. He says there's one God and Father of all. Now, that is not enough to get you to heaven to believe that. There are multiplied millions of people in the world who believe there's one God but they don't bow their knee to Jesus. In fact, the whole Islamic world, a billion people or so, would agree with that statement that there's one God. They'd call him Allah, but they say there's one. They're monotheist, in other words. Jewish people are monotheistic as they believe in one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, behold, your God is how many? One. But hear me when I say this. Trinitarian theology does not do one thing to nullify monotheism. You can be a monotheist and be a Trinitarian. In fact, to be a Trinitarian is to be a monotheist. Here's what I mean by that. The the, the core basic curriculum of Christianity we've covered today, the once for all faith delivered to the saints. And I'm convinced that part of that is the belief in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you reject that, I cannot call you in good conscience a brother or sister in Christ. This morning when I baptized Luke, I said I did so according to Scripture in the name of who? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he does that, I think, in this context to show us what real unity looks like. All right, he says here's how the church ought to function. Different component parts under one Lord working together for the glory of God. The most perfect illustration of unity is the Trinity and the church and our homes for Christians is to reflect the unity that we see in the Trinity. That's a tall order, isn't it? Remember I said though, oftentimes our practice does not reflect our position. Our position doesn't change. We're adopted, we're redeemed, we're predestined, we're saved by grace. All those things will never change. Now, what we're to give diligence to is to make sure that our practice lines up with who we say we are. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. We need the Lord's help to do that, don't we? Every day, submitting to His will. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And what a reminder today 
<clears throat> that our practice should line up with our position. We should not be hypocritical. Who we say we are and who we are, according to your word, ought to be reflected in how we live. And how we live is the purview and the sphere of our relationships. How we treat one another in the church, how we treat our spouse, how we treat our children, how we treat our co-workers. And so, Father, over the next uh, few weeks, Lord, I pray that you would uh, soften our hearts, that we would have a deep and abiding desire to please you in every way. Forgive us, Father, where we don't and where we haven't had worthy attitudes of humility and forbearance and tolerance with one another. Father, help us not to be short-tempered. Help us to be patient with one another. Help us not to always want to have our own way. Help us, Father, to submit to the preferences of others. Help us always, Lord, in that process to hate sin, but to love people. And to that end, Father, we ask for your help today, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.